The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium melodic gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. This week, masculinity, privilege, supernatural, making eyes at Mr. Fantastic, and growing up sad in a town called Celebration. This episode has it all, my beloved buds. Come join me as I talk with Red Rhino's creator, Megan Fitzmartin. That's all coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. I had the privilege of talking with Megan Fitzmartin, the creator of Red Rhino, a superhero teen melodrama that we covered in our previous episode. She and I had a very wide-ranging conversation a couple of weeks ago that covered many different topics. Like, I started talking to her about good and evil and the theodicy problem, right? How can we reconcile the existence of God with the nature of evil? Just another day in the salon of ideas here at Radio Drama Revival, where a superhero is never just a superhero, but pretty much always a metaphor for human beings' relationship to power. We explore a lot of relationships in this interview, the relationships that we have with media that influence us, the relationships we have with fictional characters, and yeah, even the relationships some of us have with our own spirituality. I think you'll dig it. Settle in, take a listen, and enjoy. Here she is, the magnificent Megan Fitzmartin. Megan Fitzmartin, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. How are Thank you? Thank you for having me. I'm good. How are you? Good. It's been a long work day, and I'm settling in for interview time. Oh, uh, yeah. I want, I want to talk to you about the, the origin story of Red Rhino. Like, how did you decide you wanted to make an audio drama? Um, well, I very much love audio dramas. It's a long backstory to kind of tell you I... Went to school to be a youth pastor, which is always uh, a fun bit to the beginning of the story. And so while I was in school, I wanted to take classes on writing for radio um, because when I was growing up, there was uh, an audio drama that meant the world to me. Um, and it was a Christian audio drama. And it was uh, we were allowed to listen to it, A, because it was Christian but also because my parents were very anti-television, not anti-television, but we just didn't have it. Yeah, you grew up entirely without a television, right? Um, until I was about 10 or 12. Okay. We had like a monitor and a VHS player, but we just didn't have television. So I listened to all of these audio dramas. Well, just really the one audio drama with all of the episodes, because uh, they've been creating episodes of Adventures in Odyssey since 1988. So... I just listened to a lot of them, and they were really beneficial to understanding not just, like, faith, but also people and how to live life. And I was realizing that, you know, creating, uh, like, all of these big abstract things, when you when you are doing an audio drama, you can kind of build off of the um, learned imagination. And 
that's something that's super special to me is is because uh, I, I want to tell stories for for teenagers has always been my um, my point and purpose in life. It's always been why I do what I do. And so I wanted to tell stories for teenagers and, and specifically because that that was how it helped me be a person. And I went to school and took classes for I, I, I took a, a screenwriting class because I was like, oh, this is probably going to be. Uh, radio, because it said radio and television, and it only taught television, but I discovered that I loved writing scripts regardless. And so uh, all that to say, I came up with a, a silent short film about a superhero named the Red Rhino, because I am obsessed with alliteration. And uh, I did that in uh, in college. And when I started thinking about like making my own audio drama, uh, that was the first one that came to mind because I've always loved superheroes and I really, really loved the, the the main character in that short film, which was Wes. It's an older version of Wes and uh, it kind of went from there. So obviously I know you adore comic books, right? You're the host of a show called Wine and Comics, right? Uh, and you've written award-winning pilot script for TV. I know you work on Supernatural. You've contributed work to Lauren Shippen's AM Archives. But I'm I'm curious. Have you have you ever worked on a comic? Have you ever written a comic of your own? I'm doing that right now, actually. I mean, I'm financing it myself. But uh, yeah, it's something that I've I've very much loved. I've loved, uh, like you said, I've loved reading comics for a long time. I took some comic writing classes a couple of years ago and have had this comic script that I very much love and believe in. And so, as with most projects, I just kind of decide that I want to do it and then figure out how to do it. And that's kind of what I'm doing right now with this uh, this indie comic um, is I'm just trying to figure out how to do it. Can we go back for a minute and talk about Adventures in Odyssey? Because I want to I want to hear more about that from you. Of course. So it's it we you and I have talked about this a little bit. but We've never really dug into it. Right. Yeah. Adventures in Odyssey was pro- is produced by Focus on the Family, which is this arch-conservative parachurch organization right. that has done a lot of harm like to people that we care about. Mm-hmm. And I guess my question is because this is so important to you, right? How do you how do you reckon with it? How do you feel that that media and other stuff like it has affected the way that you think about the world because you were saying, you know, it's given you kind of this blueprint for human relationships. And I'm not saying like don't I'm not saying like Megan toss out your Adventures in Odyssey cassettes. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's canceled forever or you're canceled forever, but I think that there's a lot of stuff that we acknowledge is problematic, even stuff that purports to be innocent. Yeah. Um that like as adults, we have to understand what's bound up in those shows. What what do you what are the things that you have pulled from it? And what are the things that like you've left behind in childhood? Um, so, you know, I grew up. As I'm sure that you can gather from listening to Adventures Not a Sea and, and, you know, it was very conservative and it's very religious. And, and I, I want to be clear. I'm like not I don't want to invade against your faith nope, that's or fine. like. The idea of political conservatism, like, I just, I want, yeah. No, I, I'm I'm not taking any type of offense, because I think that it's a thing that I grapple with a lot. Like, my faith is really important to me, but I don't ever bring it out to people until after I know them for a while, because it's hurt so many people, and that, you know, is never my intention. 
it's never my desire to hurt anyone. And, and it's something that I grapple with a lot in the fact that like this thing that means so much to me and, and shapes a lot of not only, you know, how I grew up, but who I am now has hurt so many people. And, and that's something that I really, I think I latch onto a lot. And just in terms of themes of a writer is that, you know, what are the gray areas and, you know, there are a lot of things that I think that we are still grappling with as a society as we grow and as we move through life. Well, but like, tell me so, to, to get like specific, drill down with me. What what's something really good from the show that you're like, yes, this is like a lesson that I'm holding in my heart, carrying with me something that I've built into my writing practice or even the way that I treat other human beings. I mean, I to this day will say that that is some of the like probably the only good thing that's ever come out of Christian fiction and Christian media. It is well produced. It is well acted. They got act. They got voice actors from LA to, to come in for prices that were ridiculous. Like that part I do know. And that part really bothers me is they paid very little to no money, but they put on a production that was phenomenal. Um, and their story construction was amazing. There's a couple of arcs that if you talk to any any kid that grew up listening to Adventures in Odyssey and you say Darkness Before Dawn, they will immediately be like, that is, that's the best one. Like that, it it taught me how to care about characters that I'd never met through only voices. And some of the best, like Dr. Blackard to this day is one of the best villains that I've ever listened to. Not just because his voice is sultry and very dark, but also because this was like a bad dude and not because of the a thing that I think is very easy for Christian media to kind of fall into, which is, you know, this is a bad guy because he does bad things because this is what the Bible says. This guy was just not nice. Like this guy, and it had nothing to do with faith. It had nothing to do with, you know, the, the like right and wrongs of, of scripture. It was just like, no, I think that you're hurting people and you think that you're not, you're doing this for money. And, and, it was just a very interesting approach that I hadn't really seen in other Christian media before. What's the what's the show about? Like for for people that are not familiar with it, Adventures in Odyssey is about a small town in Illinois called Odyssey, and the kids that live there, and just the townspeople, and and basically how they live their lives, and and it revolves around specifically a ice cream parlor run by uh, a man named John Avery Whitaker, uh, who uh, Wes Whitaker's last name is. is uh, I was about to ask. Yeah. 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 I, wasn't, a, gonna, I wasn't just going to sit on that one. <laughs> no, it's definitely an homage. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, because John Avery Whitaker is still a character that I look up to, is still a character who, like, all he did was love children not a creepy way, but like in a way that, you know, is who I want to be as a person. And so, yeah, I think that it, while that's, that's all the part of growing up, right, is to be able to take the things that we learned in our youth and say, all right, this is the good stuff. And this is the maybe not so good stuff. And I have to grapple with it. And that show is one of those things for me. And like, I, I did get a lot of good stuff. And there are some stuff that I would say, maybe don't listen to this. But and, and and I will to this day say that it's some of the best made stuff separate from all of the rest of Focus on the Family. It is one of the best made things in Christian production. 
Let's move on. You did an entire podcast appearance on a show called Interview with a Nerd that was all about Dr. Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic, the smartest man in the Marvel Comics universe. Yes, indeed. Tell me about Reed and what you identified as his awkward brilliance. Is there some of Mr. Fantastic in Evangeline? Um, that's interesting. I never really thought about that, but I think so. Um, Mr. Fantastic is my favorite comic book character of all time. So for those who are not familiar, what's his deal? What's his powers? Oh, man. Mr. Fantastic has the ability to stretch. That's it. That's his cool power. And it's not a cool power. It's more that he is one of he is the smartest man in the Marvel Universe. You haven't heard of him if you only watch the movies, which no judgment. I know a lot of people that only watch the movies. There are some that like I've never read certain comic books until like the movie comes out. But for people who have only really watched the movies for Marvel basis, um, Mr. Fantastic is the smartest man in, in the Marvel comic universe. Smarter than Tony and smarter than Dr. Charles Xavier. He took his family up into a spaceship and uh, they got attacked by gamma radiations and they came back to Earth with these strange powers that are varying degrees of weird. And his power is the ability to stretch. So tell me, yeah, tell me about his, like, his awkwardness and the way that he interacts with people. So Reed is not, he doesn't interact with people well, poor dear. Um, he's, <laughs> it, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people, I think, I've, I've seen people who are like, oh, well, Reed's probably autistic. And it's like, well, no, Reed just doesn't, Reed is a more Sherlock Holmes than that. Um, Reed is very, he cares so very much. Um, and that's the thing that I have fought numerous people on because I've had many people who are like, oh, well, Reed just doesn't care. Reed doesn't have the capacity to love. And it's like, that is such a gross misunderstanding of who Reed Richards is as a person. He cares so much for his family and doesn't know how to show it. He doesn't have necessarily like the the emotional and empathetic connectivity to um, kind of fully express what he's feeling and how he's feeling. And so he kind of can come across as abrasive and can come across as being really harsh, which is why I think so many people, specifically a lot of people who, who very casually have ever read a Fantastic Four comic, um, will often find and make fun of my, my Fantastic Four and, and specifically read Richard's love. Um, but there's just, this, there's just this depth of that character that is very rich, um, and is where I, I mean, that's another place that I learned a lot about myself. Um, that's actually uh, a Fantastic Four comic is where I realized that I have to be overstimulated because there there was an image of him in Times Square and his wife, Sue, Sue Storm slash Sue Richards, um, had made him invisible so that he could work on this this project that was really bugging him out. And he couldn't like fully wrap his brain around this equation. And so... Sue's like, why do I have to do this again? Like, remind me why we're doing this in the middle of Times Square. And he's like, because I have to be overstimulated. I have to like a lot. I have to have a lot of stuff around me in order to like focus on this. And I was like, that's me. That's it. That's what it is. Huh. So you said um, that you loved Reed, not just for his brilliance, but for his questionable decisions. Yes. Um, tell me about that. And tell me about how you fold that into Red Rhino. Man. So. Overall, uh, other themes, and I think I kind of said this a little bit earlier with like Adventures in Odyssey, um, I very much like great storytelling. Um, 
things that could be both good and bad. Um, I'm much more interested in kind of studying the gray areas of life because I find them to be more, they just are more rich in story. And with Reed, he makes a lot of questionable decisions. He makes a lot of, because he's the smartest person in the room and because so many, like he doesn't have necessarily the, um, sometimes he has to make hard choices because he's the leader and because he's the smartest man in the Marvel comics. And he comes under fire a lot of times. Like he comes and he comes down on the wrong side of things a lot of the time. And I love seeing that moral gray area in him. I love seeing that, like, will he at the end of the day make the right choice? Will he at the end of the day be a hero? And what is what is even a hero? Is this a, a heroic choice or is this a, a demonized choice? And how does somebody come back from that? Because he's definitely made a lot of bad. Like he was on he was on the side of, of Iron Man during the, the Civil War registration in the comics. And the rest of his family was not the rest of his family, who he does literally everything for. were all on the side of Captain America. And, and that was a huge rift in, in that story. And it, it was so, so beautifully, deliciously sad. And. Uh, I think in Red Rhino, some of the stuff that I've pulled from that is just that like that family aspect where you will do anything for family, because I think ultimately at the end of the day, that's what fascinates me about Reed. There was a um, there's a Jonathan Hickman run when Jonathan Hickman first took over the comic uh, a couple years ago and like 2011, maybe 20, 2010, something like that. And the, he did a, a three issue arc that was just Reed Richards, which is how I knew I was going to love Jonathan Hickman's run on the Fantastic Four. <laughs> and it was about, you know, tempting Reed with all of these different, he, Reed had the Infinity Gauntlet and, and the basically his ultimate choice was you can either stay in this pocket dimension, essentially, and, and work and, and, and just do all the work and do all of the study. You can solve world hunger and you can cure cancer and you can do all of these things because you have unlimited time, but you would be separated from your family. And at the end of that, he, you know, made the choice to be with his family because his family was ultimately the most important to him. And, you know, the question in that is, well, but like, shouldn't he have cured cancer? And and that's hard. Like, that's such a hard space to put someone in. And I love that. And I think that that lends itself to to Red Rhino, just in the like, we want our, our, our hero to be the hero, save the universe, save the timelines and everything that would be for for his benefit. But also he's he's a mess. Wes Whitaker is an absolute mess. Yeah. You know, it's just messy. And I love that it's all very messy. Yeah. So Megan, your your motto, your mantra is make it sadder. That's me. Why? <laughs> Why is that, please? I get so excited. It's not really my fault. I guess it is. I'm just born this way, David. I don't know what to tell you. I love things that, and and not death. I don't always think that death is the best way to make something sadder. Um, I think that that actually isn't nearly as sad. Did, was your childhood too happy? <laughs> uh, well, um, I did have this realization the other day. So I grew up in Celebration, Florida. I was I was going to ask because I wasn't sure if you were from Celebration or from Kissimmee because you you went to Celebration High School. I did. Said LinkedIn. I did. I have a whole bunch of Celebration questions later on. Oh yes. Oh, I love nothing more than talking. <laughs> no, I'm gonna ask him now. 
so uh, w- was your childhood super Disneyfied? Is there like a lot of uncanny like Disney infrastructure? Oh yeah. So my log line for my childhood is that I was the emo kid in the happiest place on earth. Oh boy. Which is, you know, it's not that I was super sad or anything like that, but like any teenager that is in any place is not going to like the place that they're in, which is what I tried to explain to my mother numerous times. But yeah, I think that it was just my own version of rebellion is that, you know, everything in this town. And I also grew up in the South, which in my experience, and this is not everybody's experience, but in my experience was very much, you know, we're going to hide the sad things and we're not going to talk about the things that are hard and the things that are heavy. Mm-hmm. We're going to, you know, be nice and polite and we're going to be very hospitable and it's about other people and we only really deal with the, the sad stuff within the family and even then we don't really deal with it. And that has definitely shaped who I am as a person in that my version of rebellion was to to not be that way. And and Disney was very much a part of that. Disney is very much. And, and, and look, I love Disney. I have a Disneyland pass because I can't live very far away from Disney. Interesting. I have a very unhealthy codependency on it. But I can also state, you know, that I think sometimes we can very easily fall into the Disneyfication model of things, which is everything is perfect and happy and wonderful. And there is a time and place for that. And I fully support it. And I love it. And I love versions of escapism. And I think that that's also very important, but not all the time. So Will has done some celebration research in her time on Al Gore's internet. And so I must ask you, <laughs> yes. uh, let's lightning round real quick. Did you sign an NDA? Blink twice if yes, but also say I'm <laughs> blinking twice because it's audio. No NDAs allowed. There were there were nothing there. So I can talk about it all the live long day. Did they make it snow in the wintertime? Did they make yes. it fake snow? Yes. It's called Snope, David. S-N-O-A-P. <laughs> oh, is it it's soap bubbles or something? Or yeah, soap flakes? So on uh during during the winter in late December, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday and Sunday, I believe, it snows, quote unquote snows, on Main Street. At six, seven, eight, and I think that's it. It doesn't snow at nine o'clock. And there's music, and it all snows from the electrical lamps. And it's, yeah, it's basically just soap. And they also, like, pre-soap Main Street so that there's already, like, a thin layer of this soapy snow. That sounds more dangerous than ice. Is it slippery soap? Eh, I mean, eh. eh. Everybody seemed fine. Okay. <laughs> Nobody died because no one, no one's allowed to die on Disney property. Did you know? Oh right, they have to hurry you off the off the campus before you expire. Well, they um they don't actually pronounce you dead until you're off Disney property. Oh, they have some kind of like horrible deal with the Osceola <laughs> County coroner or something. I don't know if there's a deal or what, but whoever it is, they they just don't pronounce anyone dead until they're off property. Oh yeah, dead Jake. He died in Kissimmee. That's right. People die in Kissimmee all the time. Uh, final final celebration question. Yes. Do they pipe in nice smells onto Main Street? Yeah. Do they just... Nice they smells do, and they, music. You, you say matter-of-factly, like that's a normal thing to do in a town. Look, like the entire town That's my growing-up experience. Yeah. Yeah. Not not the whole town, um, but just Main Street. Okay. Yeah. The, the rest of the town is picturesque, but we only... 
really did all of the like big stuff for the touristy areas. Gotcha. Okay, so back to sadness. <laughs> so we've we've hit celebration. Back to sadness, please. Yeah. Why why are you so attracted to it? Um, I mean, I was very sad. I've dealt with depression for a good part of my life. Um, and it's hereditary. Like it's something that like my my family has all dealt with as well. Um, and so I think that it was just it's just the the devil that you know, the monster that you know. It feels more real to me. And that's not to say that happiness isn't real, but I understand sadness. And there's something about a really good sad story. Like I said, not death, because I don't always equate that with sadness, but something that that hurts, I think also is the level of, of feeling. Because sometimes I have a difficult time. This is another way that Reed Richards and I are very similar. I sometimes have a very difficult time connecting to emotions. And so when something hits in a certain way in in sadness, it it helps explain things to me in a way that sometimes I don't always feel. Interesting. You've said that one of the things that you love about the Fantastic Four that your wine and comics co-host Topher hates <laughs> is the the heartfelt breakfast conversations in that yes. comic. And when when I heard you say that, I immediately thought of the tense breakfast conversation in Red Rhino where all the Whitaker men are sitting around the table very pointedly not talking to each other about anything until they all explode. Yes. Is that is that what you were drawing from? Tell me about that. Um I find this is something that Topher absolutely hates. I find, uh, so on Wine and Comics, we have these segments called Still Life of a Superhero. And I find oftentimes those still life moments to be packed with the most drama and the most opportunity for things like sadness or things like um, the emotional connective tissue to from one scene to another. So yeah, having everybody have breakfast together was an idea that I had that kind of, I also, so I love dynamics and that to me, having everybody in a room doing something that seems quote unquote mundane really can up the levels of dynamics in a way that, yeah, you're right. Everybody explodes. Are you using dynamics in like a music sense? Um, no, I'm using Like soft it, and loud? What do you mean by dynamics? Dynamics in a music sense would make me way cooler than I am. I wish that I were meaning it that way. Um, I am meaning it more so just like interpersonal dynamics. So, you know, Wes, Wes is a different character than Raleigh, who's a different character from Buck, who's a different character from Joe, their dad. So having all of those things, I guess, to utilize a musical format, having all of those different opinions and, and people can kind of create this, this, not cacophony, but this, this flow of music in a way that can be very either everyone can work together well or there's a sense of dissonance and I love dissonance and so I find that those simple moments that I love very much are often the place where you can have the most dissonance cool okay we're going back to the heavy zone um I have two reasons for asking this question one you wrote a superhero melodrama. Number two, you have a bachelor's degree in church ministries. Megan, how do you how do you conceive of evil? Does evil exist? Is that even a constructive question? Um, I do think that evil exists because good exists. Well, how do how do you how do you how do you wrap your head around it? What is it? To me, goodness 
the reason I understand what good is is because I know what the absence of good is. And that, I think, is what we kind of call evil. I don't think of evil as being a noun. Um, I think of evil as being an absence of good. I don't know if that's helpful or anything, but... <laughs> yeah. So I, I think in a superhero show, we construct evil broadly, right? Like, what do you see as the distinction between cartoon evil and real evil? What do, you, what do you think pushes people to do evil shit? To me, the question of good and evil is never, is never a checklist. It, it's never like, so I'm going to spoil The Good Place. Have you watched The Good Place? I have watched The Good Place. We are entering the spoiler zone for The Good Place. I know. So sorry, everyone. Um, but the thing that I found really interesting about The Good Place is its points-based system, which is, I think, how a lot of people kind of view good and evil. And I don't know. I love it in the, I love it in the show, and I love it in the show specifically because of what they've been doing this season with the, this is the spoiler bit, where no one's been able to go to heaven because no one does any good things because it's all bogged down with all of these other things that like, you know, you, you think that you're doing something nice, but, but there's so much now because we live in this such a complicated world. And I think that that's to me why the point system is such a hard thing for me to kind of conceive with. Whereas, you know, my understanding of, of good and evil in both fiction and nonfiction is that we're not, we're neither good nor evil. There are people who do evil things in this world and who I have very strong opinions about. But at the end of the day, I don't know if I could wish them harm because I don't know if that would make me any better or worse than them. And those are things that I like to grapple with because I don't think that there's a clear answer. And that to me is why, you know, I enjoy I enjoy the more modern superhero stories because there there's more space to grapple like there have been fantastic four stories where they're like are we the bad guy and i love that because that's a that's a great question you know in existing with you know evil is the absence of good well who defines good and like what does that look like and there are different they're just there's just different classifications and sometimes that that can be a if if you don't have some like bare bones basics, that can be a difficult thing to kind of maintain. And I like that. I like that it's hard. I like that it's a struggle to kind of go through life and be like, all right, where am I at right now? Because I, I like that we're constantly trying to figure that out. I, I, I guess I'm kind of asking you a theodicy question. Sure. So, I mean, the Jesus-y answer is, you know, God says that there is no good beyond him which i do agree with but the issue with that is that not everybody believes in god so how do you deal with that and that's a great question and i think that within that you know if if we go into the theology thing in the theology realm which i love doing and i have no qualms doing it cuz it's a lot of fun in my experience this is not true for everybody but I, what i like to do whenever i enter kind of a theology zone is live in a world where nobody's right, nobody's wrong, and blasphemy is acceptable. Because I don't think that you can get to a place in conversation that is of, of any sort of authenticity. So I had a really great theology teacher 
when I was in college who walked us in one day and was like, what is evil? And then if, if we were like, well, it's, it's this thing, it's, it's a noun. He's like, great. Then did God create evil? And then you're like, well, shit. <laughs> no. <laughs> Cause what does that mean? Right. That's, that's the theodicy question, right? Like right. The, the moral question of like, how do you reconcile an existence of God with? Right. I'm, not, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to like. In this interview about a superhero podcast, I'm not trying to get you to pin down the existence of God. But I, I like. No, we'll I'm, do it. We'll do it here, like, David. This is where it's gonna happen. Well, no, because I'm. 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 I'm curious about the way that. Because the way I the way I hear, Red Rhino is as a comic book, right? Yeah. And. And comic books can, superhero stories can reify a particular kind of morality, right? Yeah. And I'm just curious about the way you perceive evil and how it filters into the story world of Red Rhino. That's that's really what I'm. I think I'm trying to pull at. Yeah. I, I guess. I guess I want to get at this question of like, why do we tell stories about superheroes? What is it that superhumans tell us about ordinary humans that we find that you personally find compelling. I, it's interesting because I find those to be two separate questions because to me, and I could, I could talk about genre storytelling all day. I grew up on genre storytelling and I, I often will find that like I lean more toward genre storytelling because I, it, it helps me understand life. And what I think genre storytelling lends itself to is similar to what I think that audio drama storytelling lends itself to, which is taking an abstract concept and and teaching you how to make that abstract concept concrete. And I think that, so the reason that we like superhero dramas is because there are massive stakes. There are life and death stakes. And I wouldn't necessarily call them good and evil, but those can also be the massive stakes too. So I think within the realm of these massive stakes, we can kind of contextualize the stakes that we exist in every day. I worked with a bunch of teenagers and, and they would tell you that like somebody not liking them at in, in school feels like life or death. And they, you know, they know that it's not contextually like they know, like logistically, I know that like certain things are not life and death logistically and and in real life, but that feels like life and death. And so having stories that exist on such an abstract medium, like superheroes, like ghost stories, like audio drama that exist in, and mostly the audience's imagination, create a space to kind of work out those abstract concepts and create a more concrete rationalization. Whereas like, because I know that Mr. Fantastic is going to be grappling with these big things. And, and because I see, like I said, like, because I saw how he worked through an equation in the middle of Times Square and was made invisible, all things that I would and could never do, I could contextualize this abstract concept and make this a concrete realization for my own life. whereas. It means that, oh, I enjoy being overstimulated. And that is why I have a hard time studying in silence. 
and I need to have the television on or music playing or something. And I think that, yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, the good and evil context of superheroes, but of any type of storytelling are just massive stakes that we understand and can retextualize the rest of our own world. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. What are you, what are you trying to work through? What are the questions? What are the abstract notions that you're trying to concretize with Red Rhino? Man. Um, and it's it's like okay if you don't have like a explicit answer for that. If that's like, I don't know, David, that's just subtext and I'm not you I know. just like doing it. It's fun. I mean, I do like doing yeah. it. I do find it fun. Uh I love this medium and I love, you know, writing my own little love letter to this particular medium that is that mean that has meant so much to me since I was a kid. And I also think that like that goes back to what we were talking about with voice. Uh, I think that almost every writer, part of their voice is what story they're telling. And for me, the topics that I find really interesting in Red Rhino and that um, I kind of carry through and work th- and, and constantly working through is the question of an ordinary person trying to live their life and do extraordinary things. And how do you save the world when you feel like the world is against you? And there's so many themes in Red Rhino of like depression and sadness and and struggles and, and, you know, family expectations and things like that, that I think are really prevalent in my own life and my own kind of grappling with those ideas and those, those particular abstract concepts. Um, this is my last heavy question and then I'll, I'll, I'll bring us out into the fun zone. No worries. Um, although maybe this, maybe this is fun for you too. I don't know. Are you, are, is this okay? Are are we? Yeah. Or am I? Doing okay. Great. I'm not like yeah. touching any uncomfortable nerves. Nah. Brace them all. Tell me about masculinity. Ah, yes. Masculinity. Yes, please. Tell me about like your conception for Wes and Chad's like rage buttons. Yeah. Because they're real easy to set off, right? They're super fragile. They're super angry. Yes. Just teeming with fury. What's going on there? So. When I first conceived of Red Rhino, I was really annoyed because don't we already have enough superhero stories about a teenage boy who gets superpowers in high school? And I grappled with that idea for a long time and I grappled with the the story because I couldn't, you know, I thought about changing Wes's gender. I thought about changing his race and, and none of those changes felt authentic or or. Like that, that wasn't the story that was trying to be told. And so the more that I thought about it, the more I was like, oh, I think the story here is actually about privilege. I think the story here is about this superpower that some kid doesn't really like, doesn't really want to have. And the unfortunate aspect in truth is that he, he does have it. And what's he going to do with it? And how he's supported by the rest of the world saying, hey, look, we don't like that you have it either, but that's just the way that the world is now. And we, how are we going to work within the confines of that? And so a lot of the story choices that were made specifically to season one are very much kind of dealing with privilege and, and toxic masculinity and 
Wes makes a lot of mistakes and they're not all Chad's fault. Some of them are Chad's fault. Chad's a dick, but not all of them are Chad's fault. Sure. It can't all be Chad. It can't. We can't all have a Chad. But, you know, the, the last episode specifically, Chad isn't in it at all. And all of the, the choices and the things that Wes says are all him. And it's funny because I see a lot of people who are like, oh, I, I like Wes and I identify with Wes. And so much of me is like, why? <laughs> Wes is garbage. Um, he's my garbage son, but also he's a little bit of garbage. But I love that. But it, I think it's true that we've all felt that way. We all exist in a world where like there are different responsibilities that we have. And that's something that I've always tried to do with Wes is like play with his responsibility, play with his inability to fully grapple with that and go from there. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> so so you've been working on Supernatural for almost three years now. Yes. And you've even, even written an episode in this most recent season. Yeah. Um, the differences between writing your own show and writing for a show in its 14th season must be manifold. But I'm, I'm, I'm most curious about your experience in the writer's room for the episode you're credited on and how it felt different from crafting the first season of your own show. Um, there was a lot more help in Supernatural. And there were more people who were kind of making sure that I wouldn't mess up Supernatural than there were people making sure I didn't mess up Red Rhino, which made Supernatural kind of a nice respite from writing Red Rhino. (laughs) Just because, yeah, like the the responsibilities for Red Rhino, it feels feels intense and very heavy. And writing for Supernatural, it's a show that has a voice. Like I was able, I think, to bring my own type of voice to it and have my own kind of spin on the world. Um, And I'm I'm so grateful for for the opportunity and for being able to, to add to the world but it was it was just this like it was just like a friend versus you know red rhino who is still in its infancy and i'm still trying to kind of figure everything out and so yeah i think that like that was the the major difference really was this like calm assurance from someone else that somebody else had my back whereas in red rhino like i have an amazing producer and director but ultimately i am the one making all of the choices and that's scary. That's a terrifying high wire act, right? Absolutely. Final question. If you could have superpowers, though, what kind, please? Okay, everyone makes fun of me for this. I want to have telepathy powers. And I get that, like, nobody wants telepathy powers because nobody wants to know what other people are thinking. I want to know what other people are thinking all the time, always. Because I think that it would help me love people better. It would help me, like, get to where people are at and kind of, like, what they're thinking. And so I want telepathy powers. I'm not going to make fun of you. I'm just going to call out the fact that that's terrifying. No, I mean, I know. I get that it's not, like, a great idea in concept. But, man, it would just, like, I, I won't use them for bad ever. It will just help me. I have your superhero name. Yes, tell me. And it's Panopticon. <gasps> yes. Oh, man. <laughs> what a good superhero name. She sees all. gum, David. Thanks. My rates are very reasonable. <laughs> I like it. That's good. 
Megan, thank you so much for joining me. This was a really, a really lovely conversation. Thank you for answering all of my ridiculous questions. I love it. Thank you for having me. Here comes the outro. If you want to support Megan's work, head over to patreon.com slash redrhinopodcast, where for a dollar a month, you can have the satisfaction of supporting an independent work of fiction. Likewise, if you join us at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival, you can have that very same satisfaction and also join our Discord server, where I occasionally post embarrassing voice clips from my past. Radio Drama Revival is brought to you by Patreon patrons like Jeff, Sumner, and Kat. Thank you so much, folks. Radio Drama Revival is also brought to you by the never-ending power of sweet tea, which I make an enormous batch of twice per week, but never at the sweetness that an actual Southerner would desire. If you are a Yankee like me and you've never had actual sweet tea from actual the South, like, take my word for it and order it half-sweet, half unsweet. You will thank me. It's too powerful for our palates. And now, your moment of will. Hey friends, last episode I asked you who was the first costumed hero, and today I have the answer. The first costumed hero was the Phantom, dating all the way back to 1936. A lot of people think Superman and action comics, and yeah, true, Superman was super, super, super early. Um, but the Phantom was actually the first. So that is your little piece of trivia for today. And hey, your friends, they really do love you. A lot. I just checked my watch, and guess what, friends? It's Credits O'Clock. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Will Williams. Our interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our submissions editor is Elena Fernandez-Collins. Our social media manager is James Oliva. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalge. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. And this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. When it comes to their kids, dads don't have favorites. When it comes to their tools, they do. And the Home Depot has every one of them. Top brands like Makita and DeWalt. Exclusive brands like Ryobi, Husky, and Rigid. Even Milwaukee, with an M12 12-volt 5-tool kit, now just $199. Today is the day for doing, and for dad, with the best selection of his favorite tools only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Offer valid through June 19th while supplies last. There's a difference between do-it-yourself and do-it-for-a-living. At the Home Depot, we get that. And we're here to help pros get the job done with the products and brands you trust. Technology to keep your job on track. Job site delivery to save you time. And bulk pricing on over 4,000 items every day to save you money. When you've got a job, we're on the job. The Home Depot. More saving, more doing.